0: So this morning, we're going to be starting a new series that we're just going to pop in and out of every now and then. It's not going to be a continuous series, but uh, we'll be here for about five or six weeks uh, this week, uh, or this, this time, and then, you know, have another iteration a little bit later. But I'm calling it the tapestry, finding the thread of God's redemption through human history. And what I want to do in it is to look at the narrative portions of the Bible. So for these next five or six weeks, we're going to look at scripture from Genesis chapter one to approximately chapter 11. Later in the fall, um, we're going to do a few more weeks looking at the kind of what comes next in Genesis 12 and following the stories of Abram, Abraham, and Sarah. But my goal is for us to understand this story of redemption, that, that thread that goes through not only the Bible, but all of human history, uh, that that we see penned by these biblical writers. And so this morning, we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to look at the creation story as found in the opening chapter of the Bible. And so if you would open your Bibles or Bible apps, if you want to follow along, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. Now this is the first of uh, two uh, slightly different creation narratives. And I'll say, you know, I, I spent some time taking religious studies courses at Penn State University, uh, which, as you can imagine, as a secular university. was not necessarily uh, the, the kindest, the most benevolent towards a uh, faithful, uh, spirit-filled interpretation of Scripture. And this is one of the places that skeptics would argue that the Bible is contradictory to itself. Because there are two creation stories, and they don't always agree in perfect alignment. Um... I think the differences between the two are very intentional, and we'll look at that a little bit more next week, just to kind of whet your appetite a bit for that when we look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, the the second story in greater detail next week. But for now, we're going to read Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to actually go through the first three verses of chapter 2, if you want to follow along with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw... And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I know that was a lengthy passage, but I think it's uh, I always enjoy listening and, and reading it kind of in its entirety to feel that flow of, uh, of that narrative. Now, if you've been in the church for any length of time, I'm sure that you have heard a number of conversations around how to interpret the text that I just read. Okay. Uh, are, for instance, are the days described literal 24-hour days or are they representative of millions of years? And there are many Christians in the church who have very, very strong opinions as to which is the correct, or what they think is the correct interpretation of the passage. So I just want to summarize a few of the more popular ones for you. Now first, and I've alluded to the the first two. First, you have the basic reading that the earth was created in six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. Now, proponents of this position take the passage at face value and the, follow, the passages that follow at face value using the genealogies that follow to count back in time to the origin of the world. In 1650, Irish Archbishop James Usher did the math, and he recorded that the earth was created on October 23, 4004 B.C., Now, for many who hold this position, it is crucial. It is a hill that they're willing to die on. And The reason for that is because if you don't take the Bible at face value here, they believe that it undercuts the authority of the text, and it leaves you open to dismiss the Bible at other places, right, if the text goes against cultural conventions. So a literalistic interpretation, which is what that would be, right, reading it, literally, it flies in the face of modern science. A quick Google of when was the Earth created gives the primary uh, result of a NASA article which states that, answers the question that about 4.5 billion years ago. So which is right? Do we trust science that says that the Earth was made 4.5 billion years ago or the Bible which argues 6,000 years? Now, as a result of this dilemma, there have been scholars who have tried to interpret the Genesis 1 text differently, to make it so that their biblical interpretations align with science. For example, one of those interpretations is called the day-age theory, and it suggests that each of those six days that are recorded in Genesis is symbolic of millions of years. Therefore, the six days described can fill that 4.5 billion years that NASA suggests, but if you want to hold to that, this position has some challenges because we read that on day three, God made all the plants. But the sun, which is essential to photosynthesis and therefore life, uh, uh, the life of the plants was not created until day four, which could have been millions of years between the two. Another explanation is what is called the gap theory. Now, uh, th- th- This suggests that In Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. It it describes God's act of creating everything, but that something happened between verse 1 and verse 2. What's often suggested is perhaps a cosmic war in heaven, which left the earth ravaged in chaos. So between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, there is a break of an indefinite amount of time. And so what this, this theory posits is that what begins in verse 2 Describes the recreation of the cosmos. So, it, do you get that? Basically, Genesis 1:1 may have taken place billions of years ago, but 1:2 and following only took place 6,000 years ago. Now, it is it is my opinion, and I'm always you know me, I, I don't shy away from controversy. It's my opinion that each of these interpretations stems from the same problem because they're all trying to answer what I think is the wrong question. How creation came into being. They're trying to determine the mechanism for creation. Trying to read Genesis chapter 1 similar to the, one, the way that one might read a biology or a physics textbook. I don't think that that first chapter, the opening chapter of Genesis, is trying to give us a precise method of the how Of creation. Now, I will always state that any of those three uh, theories or those three uh, options that I shared, any of them could be correct. Any of them could be accurate, right? God is infinite. It is well within his power to create an entire, the entirety of the universe in 144 hours. I can't do that, but God is clearly capable of doing that. But I don't think that's what Genesis 1 is meant to teach us. I think instead that the, ch- the the structure of Genesis one is intentional. Now, the interpretation that I'm about to share is called the framework hypothesis. Of course, I save the one that I prefer as as, as last. Um, but note the framework hypothesis. Note that all of these are theories, hypotheses. None of us knows uh, n- none of us knows for sure how to precisely interpret the text. But by looking at the literary structure, I hope we can see that there is some cosmic. Uh, ordering If creation. So you can break the six days into two categories, right? Days one through three and four through six. Now, in days one through three, what we see is we see God creating habitats. Right? He's creating containers biomes, if you will. Right, Day one is light and dark. Day two are seas and skies. Again, there's a lot of language in the ESV about heavens, but the, the Hebrew word for heaven can also be sky. Um, day three, you see kind of the land coming up out of that the waters uh, and vegetation coming. Now, if you go back to this, right, days four, five, and six pairing with that, what you have is they correspond to the same ordering of days. But filling those spaces, filling those habitations with habitants, right? Four through six, the, the light and dark fills with the sun, moon, and stars. Days five, we see this, this, f- these fish and birds. Day six, language of animals, land animals and, and humans. Now note the language. I, I really like in particular days five and six, the language of swarms. It's some translations describe it as teeming with life. And this is the language of abundance, and we'll return to that a little bit later in a moment. But that structure reflects an ordering of the six days of creation. And then chapter two, the beginning of chapter two, which again, the chapter uh, headings were uh, later additions, Uh, chapter two, verses one through three, I think crescendos with the Sabbath, where God rests, right? Seven being the, the, the understanding of completion in the Hebrew mind. And God rests not because he was, is exhausted. He wasn't worn out, right? I was doing some weeding in the garden and I needed a break because I was tired yesterday. God wasn't tired, but his Sabbath was to enjoy it, to relish in the creation that he had made. Now, I personally think that this is the literary style, the literary structure, which should guide our interpretation of the creation account, All right? So I've shared, I don't, I've shared what I don't think the text communicates, namely that mechanism, namely the how, precisely how the world came into being. But there are a number of things that Genesis chapter one do reveal to us about God and about creation. Now, it's important for us to remember that this text, the Bible, did not come out of a vacuum. The first several chapters of Genesis were not recorded as human history, but they were revealed to Moses by God when he wrote the Pentateuch, when he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now think about this, so Moses is, is given this, this vision of God and he's writing uh, this, which is no, it, I'm not saying that it's not true by any means, it is a true account of history, but during that time, the Hebrew people were surrounded with many other nations, all that had their own myths of how the world came into being. And I believe that the text of Genesis 1 is first and foremost a subversive narrative contrary to the pagan mythologies of the day. There are some very stark differences between what we read in Genesis 1 and what the other nations in the ancient Near East believed of how the world came to be. So we looked at what Genesis 1 doesn't communicate, but what does it tell us? And I've got a number of points. I'm gonna just go through them pretty rapid fire. So first, as I stated, there are two creation accounts in the beginning of Genesis. Chapters 1 and chapters 2 of, of, of the book. And there are some significant differences between the two, but one of the most important differences is the name that is used of God. In Genesis 1, and, and you can see this in your English Bibles, in Genesis 1, the term that is used exclusively is Elohim, right? and God said. In Genesis 2, it is a name, Yahweh, which if you just flip over and look at Genesis 2, it, it describes the Lord, the work of the Lord. So Elohim was the generic word for God. Right? Much like when we say God, we are referring to right, you know, the Godhead, the Trinity, the Christian understanding of God. But a Hindu might use the term God to describe his or her worship of Shiva or Brahma. Uh, clearly, they're not the same God that is worshipped or gods that are worshipped, but it's that same generic title that is used. It's kind of what Elohim is like. Genesis 1 uses the generic label of God to speak broadly about the authority and the universalistic nature of God's work in creation. Right? That He created the cosmos, everything. The term Elohim is actually a plural form of the na- noun El. So Elohim arguably describes multiple gods, but when the subject, again notice this, when the subject is described as creating in verse 1, 1, or chapter 1, verse 1, the verb that is used is singular. So there's, I mean, there's kind of some intentional bad grammar going in here. And so this plural understanding of Elohim, it could be a reference to the Trinity. Some people uh, uh, make that argument that because God has always existed in kind of a one being, multiple people, three persons, um, but, uh, but but in that, I think it's also intentional to be subversive to this highly polytheistic nature, right? You worship these gods as creation. Well, I'm going to tell you who the true God in the kind of plural form, but acting as a singular uh, uh, subject in the verb. Anyway, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but the use of this idea of God was not just to you know, to say that oh, there's this deity that's particular to the Hebrews who did the work of creation, but that the one and only source of creation for all is God, who we understand to be Yahweh. Secondly, God we see in the text created out of nothing, right? There was nothing, and then God spoke it into being. God didn't like fashion the world out of raw materials that were already in circulation, but He created everything. Verse 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, a few months ago, I used the term for this literary device. It's called a merism. It means that God not only created those two opposites, heaven and earth, but it's meant to understand that everything in between as well. I used the example of if you, you know, lost something, you might search high and low for it, and that doesn't mean that you're just looking on the ceiling and the floor for it, but that you're looking everywhere for it the mechanism of this. God created everything. The mechanism we see is the power of his word. God said it, and it was. There's, There's no real effort described in the story, just that when God speaks, the universe obeys. Even at God's command, it just exists. So Genesis reveals God's power and authority over creation. Next, God created out of the abundance of himself. He didn't create out of need. In many of the ancient Near East myths, the gods created humanity to serve them. They got tired of doing all this work put before them. So humans were created to be their labor force so that they could live in leisure. We don't see a hint of that here. It wasn't that God was lonely either. We know that God was already in relationship with himself in the nature of the Trinity. And we see hints of that even in the first three verses of the Bible, right? We see references to all three persons of the Godhead. The father is described in the opening verse with that generic name for God. God created. The son appears in verse three. And God said, because what does the New Testament tell us? That the son is the logos, the word of God, the agent which brings the ideals of the father to bear in the world. And lastly, we see the Holy Spirit referenced in verse 2, the Spirit hovering over the waters of the deep. Right? Notice, note that, that hovering, it's, it's avian language, it describes a bird, it fits with the symbolism we see elsewhere in Scripture of the, the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, in the form of a dove. And we see similar references in the Old Testament, too, to that avian language. Now, think back to what I said a few minutes ago. In the creation of the habitants, in days four through six, we catch catch a glimpse of the abundance of God because He creates swarms of stars, of fish, of birds, of animals. The commands to creatures and humanity are to be fruitful, to multiply. Genesis 1 tells us that God did not create out of need but out of the richness of himself and thereby he invites the creation to reflect that abundance as well. The last characteristic I want to share about God before we move on to some characteristics of creation is actually my personal favorite. And you might not necessarily notice it unless you're familiar with some of the, the other myths of the days. But God created the cosmos out of peace. One of the typical uh, features of the surrounding pagan myths is that the creation arose out of conflict or strife. Now this wasn't nearby, but just Elizabeth and I were talking the other day um, about the, I think it was Elizabeth, I'm not sure, one of my kids, about Greek mythology and how, you know, Zeus was like the one son of Kronos that wasn't eaten and then Zeus like cut open his stomach, and got them all out. It's it's very graphic, right? It's always about war, strife, conflict. Probably the most popular story from this region in Mesopotamia is called the Enuma Elish. And in this myth, the the pantheon of these pagan gods are fighting an evil serpent named Tiamat. And they're not having much luck until the hero, Marduk, joins the fray. Marduk kills Tiamat by shooting an arrow at her, splitting her in two, and the tears that are shed from the eyes of Tiamat become the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And the body of Tiamat, right, which has been filleted, has been cut in half, becomes the heavens and the earth, respectively. That's how they believed the the world came into being through this ma- major conflict. But in our story, there's no cosmic battle. There's no usurper. There's no rival god or goddess just God creating the vastness of life. I hope you're starting to see how this text, I think, was intentionally subversive to the other ancient creation accounts of the day. It, this text communicates that God is supreme, that he has no competitor, that he is good, that he creates life out of his own ample goodness. Now this text not only tells us some things about God, but also about the world that was created and us who fill it. As you read the progress of each day, there's this theme that we encounter repeatedly, that God looks at what he had made and he declares that it is good. But that's not all, because the days continue with their rhythm. God said, he created, and it was good. God made, and it was good. But it culminates on day six, verse 31, that God looked at everything he was done, that he had created. And it was very good. It was exceedingly good. The Hebrews, it was forcefully good. Now this message is important for us because in many circles there was a dualism that existed. In the early church they saw it as a religious sect called Gnosticism. And this framework believed that that which is spiritual is good and that which is physical is is bad or evil. And so the goal of religion, the goal of spirituality, religious expression, was to fight off that physical brokenness to get to the point where you could unite with the spiritual realm and be free from the tyranny of your flesh. Think you could argue, see some of this in in, uh, modern day in, in Buddhism or Hinduism, right? Whereas the desire is to kind of break apart from the suffering of the self and be united in nirvana with that oneness. So therefore, flesh is bad, physical is bad, spiritual is good. I think there are places that this philosophy has crept into our churches as well, where we view these, you know, anything that is physical, any urge as bad or repulsive. But the first chapter of Genesis tells a different story. It reminds us that the creation in its original state is not only good, but very good. Now, granted, next week we're going to look at the fall, we're going to look that it has been marred for sure, but it was originally physical. Elements of creation were good. Lastly, I think the creation story here tells us about ourselves, and again, we'll explore a little bit about this next week, but it tells us about humanity. Because the pinnacle of God's creation, God made humanity in his image and his likeness and this instructs us in a few ways, right? First, it shows that both male and female are the image of God. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Again, there's some, some very intentional grammatical uh, uh, confusion there, but I think it's meant to, to highlight the, the oneness of male and female, right? G- Jesus even refers to this in, in the uh, uh, man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Again, we see that again in, in chapter two, chapters 2 and 3 but it shows that both male and female are in the image of God, that they are both part of the divine essence, reflecting different characteristics of God, that neither sex fully reflects the glory of God unto themselves. Once again, this was subversive to the setting around it because many other ancient Near Eastern cultures believed that it was only the kings or only the men who were the ones that were imaged bearers of God. Once again, the God we follow from the beginning clearly demonstrates the democratization of his goodness, of his grace. But one of the most fascinating parts of the creation of humanity is that they were made in the image and likeness of God. In Hebrew, those terms in the ancient world literally meant a statue, a representation of something. Now, I think this is part of the reason why the Hebrew faith so strongly rejected any form of idolatry. Because in those days, you know, looking at these, these pagan religions, when a temple was created to a god or goddess, the idol, a statue, an image or likeness of the god would be erected in the space to serve symbolically as the temple's guardian. Now, as we'll see a bit more next week, Eden, right, the, 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 the space that God created in Genesis 2, was created with some very strong temple imagery. We're meant to understand it in this kind of temple perspective. And you even see this in the, the Hebrew temple. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, right? Because there's all kinds of like trees and waters and things like that carved into the, woven into the, uh, the, the, the temple. We'll get there. I think what we're to understand in this, man and woman being made in the image of likeness as God, is that men and women were meant to be the guardians of the temple, the guardians of the earth as the representative of God in the space. Now we see this further elaborated with, with what is often called the cultural mandate, that humanity is tasked with filling the creation and subduing it. These representatives of God are to reflect God to the creation, to multiply, right? Out of abundance, to team with life, but also to create culture. To paraphrase Tim Keller, culture-making is when we take the raw materials that God has left and rearrange them for the flourishing of life. This is a responsibility that we as humans, as image bearers, carry with us. Now I know there was a lot of things that I hit in there. And I don't have any particular like take-home applications for us, but I hope that we've been able to connect some of these dots on how this first chapter of Genesis influences our lives. If I am correct that Genesis 1 does not give us the mechanism for how Earth came into being, it does give us some very important and foundational truths about God, creation, and ourselves. It reminds us that there is no God but Jehovah, that creation displays the grandeur of God's authority, the power that he wields, that he didn't create out of need, he didn't create out of conflict, but created a world teeming with life out of his own abundance. We saw that he created he declared creation good very good that the physical world that we inhabit is not a necessary evil that we must wade through just counting down the days until we reach heaven but instead is a garden ripe with opportunity and to that end lastly he calls us to be his representatives that we are called to reflect the glory, to reflect the goodness of God to the world that we live in. That we are called to rule and subdue it, not for selfish gain, but in alignment with the love that God has shown us and his authority over each one of us. So again, we're just really starting this story, starting to track this story of redemption. And we'll we'll go through it over the next few weeks. But as we go through these narrative portions of scripture, I want to encourage you this week to to process some of these questions. And I'll put them on Facebook. So the first is this. Which of the creation theories do you most align with? What are the strengths and weaknesses of that position? Because the truth is all of these theories, all of these hypotheses have strengths. Otherwise, they wouldn't actually be a a theory. Uh, But there's also weaknesses. And so trying to just figure out where we are on that spectrum and be hopefully in that, right, as, as we are as a church, be generous to those who have uh, perhaps different perspectives than we do of that. Secondly is this. Do you typically engage life with an abundance or scarcity mindset? I know for myself, I often operate out of scarcity there's not enough, right? This, the idea of having a zero-sum game is a scarcity mindset that in or- order for me to, to win, someone else has to lose. I think we see this in so many areas, whether it be, well, we don't need to get into politics or sportsmanship or education. So what needs to change? If, if you have a scarcity mindset, what needs to change in your life to better reflect the abundance of God? And in particular, as you relate it to creation. And lastly, God commands humanity to create and cultivate culture. That is part of our calling. How will you reflect that calling this week? What will you do? What will you create? What will you cultivate? Let's pray. Lord, you are the creator, there is no one but you. As we read chapters like Genesis 1, and it can be really difficult to interpret because do we understand it literally? Do we understand it symbolically? There are so many elements of that that cause us pause. And Lord, I pray that we would not be caught up in, you know, that we wouldn't miss the forest for the trees, that we would not, uh, in arguing over which perspective we think is right, that we would miss these truths, these foundational truths that have been set in human history. Lord, that from the very beginning of your word, it is meant to be subversive to this world that does not acknowledge you. That is meant to take these stories that people have fashioned and to correct them, to give them a glimpse into, to pull back the curtain of what you have done in the world. And we see it in your creation. May we hold fast to your goodness. May we hold fast to your power and authority. And may we see the call that you have put on our lives to be your representatives here. May we carry that task, may we carry that mantle uh, solemnly, like with with, with, uh, seriousness, but at the same time with the freedom of exploration that you give us. Lord, we pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.